Good morning. We are grateful for the visitors and guests that we have with us this morning. This is a special Lord's Day for us. After this, we'll have our normal Bible classes, and then we'll have we'll come back for our singing. We have a church each singing, but before we get into the singing in the afternoon service, we'll have a short devotional. And I just want to ask a favor of those, especially those with small children, to please stay and come back because it's my intention this afternoon to preach a lesson, a short lesson, 10, 15 minutes, specifically to the children. Things every child should know about Jesus. And I want them to sit, if they could, on the first few rows, just like we do for pew packers. And so if you do have small children, please have them stay for that so that we can enjoy that time together. They normally sit still while we preach other lessons, but this time we're going to reverse it. And everybody else is going to sit still while they hear a lesson. And if you are young at heart, you can sit up front, too. We'll make we'll make room. It's happening so often. We're sort of getting used to it, aren't we? Even though we know in the deep recesses of our heart that it's just not supposed to be the way that things appear to be in our world. Whether it's those that were gunned down in the shooting at Buffalo, New York, at the grocery store a few weeks ago, or those shortly thereafter who were gunned down while church going in California. Or the most recent one in Texas this past week where 19 children, third and fourth, and two teachers were gunned down for unknown reasons. Our society is becoming this way, and if we're not careful, we can get used to it, even though we know that we shouldn't. Beyond just on the global or on the national level, there are those things that strike closer to home for us. You think about people right here in the Lehman Avenue family who are suffering, suffering terribly, going through immense hardships. You think about the Wilsons and others that have experienced loss and hardship and unfavorable diagnosis and things of health that just frustrate us and make us uncomfortable. It was at the Freed Hardeman Lectureship a few years ago. I heard Jeff Jenkins say there's pain on every pew. And he was right about that. And even not on that scale, you just get down to the everyday frustrations of life, the things that we suffer with, whether it be financial reversals or unhappiness or disappointment or stress or anxiety and all of us. Know what human suffering is all about. It's a frustrating thing, but it's the human reality. Since Adam and Eve violated God's will and sin entered our world, we know suffering, even though we don't like it. There's so much suffering in our world, many people don't know where to turn. The line in Shakespeare's Macbeth is right. Each new morning, new widows howl, new orphans cry, and new sorrows strike heaven on the face. People don't know what to do about suffering, how they should respond. And maybe if you're a Christian, you know this. You say, well, I believe the Bible. And I believe what God has said, but there are just things that go on in the world that sometimes make it hard for me to harmonize those things with my faith. I believe the Bible and I believe the word of God, but all the suffering out there and in here leaves me heartbroken and frustrated. And sometimes I feel like I'm praying, I'm screaming at the sky for answers, and all I receive back is a piercing silence because God doesn't seem to be doing anything about the suffering in our world. Maybe that's you. This morning we want to talk about what does the Bible say about suffering from a specific text. But before we do that, I just want to go through these quickly. These aren't the main points of the lesson, but these are five realities, five truths that every human being needs to know and digest about human suffering. Before we get to our main text, just allow me to introduce these five realities about human suffering that we all need to accept before we get into our lesson. Here's number one. No one escapes suffering. Job 14 and verse one, Job said, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Man is born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job 5 and verse 7. Doesn't matter who we are. Because of the world in which we now live, suffering will come into everyone's life. This isn't a happy point. I'm not excited to tell you this. But we don't do ourselves any favors by pretending that this is not the case. Every human being, to one degree or another, 
we'll experience suffering. Here's number two. Christians are not immune to suffering. Your Christianity is important and God wants everybody to be saved. And God has promised us many blessings as a result of becoming Christians. But one of the things that God has not promised us is that if you become a Christian, all of your suffering will go away. That's not true. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalm 34 and verse 19. Jesus says in the world, you will have tribulation, even if you're a Christian. Sometimes people get frustrated with this. They say, well, I've become a Christian. Why are all of these things happening to me? Hold fast. God never promised that in becoming a Christian, you would escape suffering. He promises to give us something better. Here's number three. Our response to suffering is crucial. Suffering never leaves us how it finds us. It either makes us better or bitter. Suffering will push you deeper into your life's meaning. How we respond in times of suffering can either make us closer, draw closer to God or pull us further away. What we do on the worst days of our lives, it matters how we respond. It makes all the difference. Job praised God. Job chapter one. He said the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Our response to suffering matters. And so whether or not you're suffering this morning, it's good to start rehearsing because we will. And what we do when that time comes will make all the difference. Here's number four. You need a worldview that can deal with suffering. No shoulder shrugs and dry eyes allowed. Nobody can say, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that God exists and think that that worldview that we're here by no rhyme or reason is going to push us through in times of suffering. You need a worldview that grapples with this. You can't bury your head in the sand and say, well, I just won't watch news. I just won't pay attention to what's going on out there. It will come to you. Trouble will find you. It'll meet you at your door. And when it does, you and I need a worldview that can address it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Psalm 46 and verse one. We need that. And here's the fifth one. Christianity helps us to endure suffering. Christianity will not help us to escape suffering, but it can help us to endure. Paul says our light affliction is for a moment, but it produces for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Why we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, the things which are seen are temporary. The things that are not seen are eternal. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, and this is where our lesson will come from this morning. This is a familiar account to most of us, but this is where Jesus performs the miracle in John 11 of raising his friend Lazarus from the grave. In John 11 and verse 1, we're told that Jesus was made aware that his friend Lazarus was sick. In verse 3, he's called the one whom Jesus loved. Jesus assures his disciples in verse four that the sickness of Lazarus was not really going to lead to death, but it was ultimately for the glory of God. In fact, he was so sure about that, that in verse six, it says he stayed where he was for two more days. And as you read through the account, what eventually happens is what was read for us a moment ago. Jesus goes to Bethany. He meets his good friends, Mary and Martha. And eventually in John 11, 43 and 44, he calls Lazarus forth from the grave. They unbind Lazarus and Jesus does this as a miracle to show his power and his glory and his ultimate dominion over sin and over death. And that's what you have in John 11. But this morning, I think we'll get something else out of it as we think about suffering. If we look at what John 11 ultimately teaches us about Jesus. More than just a miracle of raising a man from the dead, what we have in John 11 is a snapshot, one of the biggest windows we could possibly have into the heart of Jesus in times of suffering. And what I want to do briefly is just give you five types of things to keep in mind, five things to remember about the savior of the world in days of suffering. Let's begin. Number one, in days of suffering, remember that you have an angry savior. Would you look at verse 33? 
The text says that when Jesus came there, there was Mary, excuse me, there was Mary and Martha. They were there and they were weeping. Mary came weeping and the Jews also that came weeping. And then the text says that Jesus was greatly troubled in his spirit and he was moved in his spirit and he was distressed. And then in verse 38, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit again. Now, listen, the English translators here do the very best they can, but that is not what's going on with Jesus. The text is really saying in verse 33, when Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, as these individuals come, the word here for deeply moved in his spirit means that he was agitated. He was angry. The next verse, the next phrase in verse 33 that says that he was distressed in his spirit and he was moved in his spirit. It means that Jesus began to shake violently as Jesus gets closer to the grave of Lazarus. He is upset. He is angry. He's frustrated. It happens again in verse 38. Remember, in times of suffering. That we have an angry savior. We might fool ourselves into thinking we look around, we see all the hardship and the heartbreak in our world. We see all the things that frustrate us that maybe we're upset. We're up in arms. We're uncomfortable with those things. And God's unconcerned. John 11 says, absolutely not. As Jesus comes to the grave of Lazarus, he's moved by it. But more than that, he's upset that it's happening in his world. He would rather it not be this way. And he's angry. Now, it's rare in the Bible to find Jesus angry. It happens several times. In Mark chapter 3, for example, in verse 5, when Jesus saw the hard-hearted individuals that were present, it says he looked on them with anger. In Mark 10, they tried to prevent the little children from coming to Jesus, and it says Jesus got angry. And you remember in John 2, he goes into the temple, he sees them buying and selling goods and making his father's house a place of merchandise, and he flips the tables in anger. But add to the list that in times of human suffering, Jesus is angry. He's frustrated and he's moved by it. In days of suffering, remember that you and I have an angry savior. We might think that we're upset. We're frustrated when we go to funerals and doctor's appointments and receive less than favorable news. And we're tired of always hearing things and seeing things that we think won't get any better. And I don't doubt that we're upset about it. I just want you to know we're not more upset than God. Nahum 1 and verse 6 says no one can stand before his indignation. In the days of Noah, when he saw that the thoughts and the intents of men's hearts was only evil continually, it says that God was grieved in his heart. He's not indifferent to human suffering. He's indignant over it. He wished it wasn't this way. Maybe you've known the disappointment of going to the beach and making you a sandcastle, laboring all day with great detail. And then all of a sudden, a wave that refuses to mind its own business just comes through and destroys your work. Or you spend all afternoon washing your car and for whatever reason, the clouds and the weathermen didn't see fit to notify you that there was rain and mud and slush in the forecast. Imagine crafting humanity in your own image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Putting them in the perfect place and perfect position to enjoy eternal bliss and fellowship with you. And then sin enters the world and it ruins that which you made to be perfect, that which you made to be holy, that which you made to be like you. Imagine that hurt and that grief as you see them suffering and you know that it's worse than they imagine. Romans 5 and verse 12 says, for by one man, man sin into the world and death by sin and death spread to all men because all have sinned. That's the image that we have of God. That's what Jesus shows us. When Jesus gets to the tomb of Lazarus, he's frustrated, he's angry and he's disappointed. He sees his friend Lazarus in the grave. He sees his friends weeping. Somebody says, who is he angry at? Definitely not angry at Lazarus, not angry at Mary, Martha or at the Jews that are surrounding this funeral procession. He's frustrated and upset at the very circumstances that it even has to be. You say we hate human evil. We hate suffering. Jesus does, too. 
And he's upset by it. He wishes it wasn't this way. When the Bible says that Jesus became a human being, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That means Jesus became a human. That's right. But it means more than that. It means Jesus became the perfect human. And so that means for us that whatever type of attitude Jesus had, that whatever type of emotion we see Jesus expressing, it's right for us to feel the same. To be upset about things that are wrong in this world doesn't mean we're less Christian. It means we're more like the God who can't stand to see it either. We have God's permission in passages like John 11 to not only be disappointed at evil and suffering, but to be enraged by it because that's what Jesus felt when he saw it in the world. In days of suffering, remember that you have an angry savior, a God who's upset, who wishes that it wasn't this way, who cries out with the rest of humanity that this is not how it was supposed to be. The very good creation that he made is now very corrupted. But here's number two. In days of suffering, remember that you have a weeping savior. John 1135 may be the easiest memory verse to ever be assigned. Wouldn't you agree? It's just two words. Jesus wept, but it's one of the hardest verses to remember in times of suffering. The text says Jesus, he wept. It's remarkable to see this on this occasion in this account. Not because Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, but notice everything that's going on around this text. Verse 11 says he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Verse 11 has Jesus saying to his friends, I go to wake Lazarus from his sleep. In fact, in verse 21 down through verse 26, he tells Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Your brother will rise again. And though he's sure of all of those things, it doesn't stop him from weeping as he gets to the grave of Lazarus. One way to translate this phrase would be to literally say Jesus burst into tears. His emotions overwhelmed him. In days of suffering, remember that you not only have a God who cares, you have a God who cries and no other religion in the world can say that. Jesus gets to the tomb of Lazarus and he sees human suffering and he can't help but burst into tears. There was an article in the Huffington Post. A woman wrote it and she called it the stifling of human suffering, how the West got it wrong. And she talks about Western civilizations and how we deal with grief. And she says pretty much we're terrible at grieving in the West. We don't know how this is done. When people die that we know or when we suffer with grief or hardship of any kind, this woman wrote in this article that we put people in what's called the grief box. You know about the grief box? Maybe you've been there if you've ever grieved before. But what she says happens is we put people in a grief box and in a limited amount of time, we expect them to emerge whole and perfect and fixed just like that. And she says it doesn't work that way. She called us emotionally stunted individuals who are afraid of their own mortality. And so we suppress and stuff our emotions. We don't have the hearts that we should sometimes because we think, well, we'll get over it. Maybe you've been to a funeral before and you've heard somebody say these words, be strong, don't cry. As if crying makes you weak. No, crying doesn't make you weak in the face of suffering. It makes you human. And it's an emotion that Jesus wore gladly at the tomb of Lazarus. The prophet said about him in Isaiah 53 in verse 3, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Throughout his earthly ministry, John 11 and Matthew 11 and verse 29, it says that he was gentle and lowly in heart. And that's the way he lived his life. And when Jesus saw suffering, he was not too godlike to hold back his tears. He burst into tears because he felt for his creation who was suffering. In 1912, a man by the name of B.B. Warfield wrote an essay. It's been turned into a little book called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And what he does in this essay or in this little book is he just reads through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but not taking notice of the things that Jesus did. He takes notice of the things that Jesus felt. And as he reads through the Gospels and makes mention of these and catalogs these, this is what he found. 
He said, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look for Jesus' emotions, the way that Jesus felt, the emotion that you should most commonly expect to find is that of compassion, because it is the emotion most often attributed to the heart of our Lord. The next time you face suffering or you see it in the world, I hope your mind goes back to John 11. See Jesus in John 11 and verse 35 present. See Jesus engaged and see Jesus bursting into tears. The idea in the New Testament of compassion is to feel sympathy or pity for someone else that's suffering with something and you your heart goes out to them. And if you can, you want to help them. But even if you can't, you feel with them. There's this empathy. There's this connection. Jesus felt empathy. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 34, when he saw the two blind men there before he ever healed them, the Bible says he was filled with compassion. The ESV says he was filled with pity and he touched their eyes and said, let them be open. In Mark chapter one and verse 40, the leper comes to Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me clean. And the Bible says Jesus, his heart was filled with pity and he said, be clean. When they brought him multitudes of people that were demon possessed and without hope apart from him. Matthew 14 and verse 14 says he was filled with compassion and with pity and he healed them one by one. He looked out on the multitudes, Matthew 9, 36. And the Bible says he felt compassion because they were a sheep without a shepherd. The attribute of Jesus most often described in the Bible is that he was a man of compassion. And when you and I are suffering and when we see it in the world, we should remember that Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus, and he still feels that way. He still feels this heart of compassion to mistreatment, to abuse, to injustice, because he has a heart toward the sufferer. This man's name is Joel Salinas, and he's a neurologist in Massachusetts Regional Hospital. And he, more than probably any other doctor, can say these words, I know what you feel. He suffers from something called mirror touch synthesis. And what this is, is in his mind, there's this neurological breakdown for him where he feels what other people are feeling when they're in his presence. The first case of this was in 2005. The way Joel describes it is this. If you're in his presence and you're out of breath, he feels the same thing. And all of a sudden he starts to gasp and he's out of breath. If you're in Joel's, if you're in his vicinity and you're having a panic attack for reasons unknown to him, Joel starts to feel like he's having a panic attack. He said it's both a gift and a curse. As a doctor, he says it's a curse because he gets tired of feeling the way that other people are feeling. But then it's also a blessing because he says as a medical doctor, it's a blessing to have empathy and to be able to relate to and feel with your other patients. He says it's like a glitch in my brain and it happens to only two out of every 100 people. But he feels with other people even when he would rather not. The text says that Jesus wept. Listen, it isn't a glitch in the brain of Jesus that makes him feel with and for other people. It's the gist of who he is. It's his role as the savior of the world that he comes into the human experience and he absorbs the pain that belongs to us, even though he doesn't have to. He weeps with us and he grieves with us. 1941 says Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and he burst into tears over the city in days of suffering. Remember that we have a weeping savior. You're reading through John 11 and you see Mary and Martha crying and you would expect that. And then you see the Jews that came to comfort Mary and Martha. You see them weeping, too, and you would expect that. But then they look and they see tears in the eyes of God and everybody should rightly be astounded. But it's who he is. The world would have us to think that when times of suffering and hardship are taking place, where is God? Does God care about any of this? Is God just aloof in heaven and totally withdrawn? John 11 says, keep an accurate picture of Jesus before you in days of suffering because his heart is breaking and is breaking more than ours is. 
because we have a Savior who weeps. Now, here's number three. Days of suffering, remember that you have a loving Savior. When Jesus wept, the Jews caught wind of it. And verse 36 says, they said, behold, how he loved him. They saw Jesus' love for Lazarus in the fact that he wept. But the text tells us before that. If you go back up to John 11 and verse 3, the text says when they came to Jesus, they told him, the one that you love, he's dead. Now, the Bible tells us that God is love. First John 4 and verse 8. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his one of a kind, his only begotten son into the world so that he would die for our sins. John 3, 16. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. First John 4, 19. And all of those passages that teach us about the heart of God and the love of God. And those passages are easy to quote and easy to digest when things are going our way. But they're hard to appreciate when it feels like everything in the world is turned upside down and things are not going our way. But here's the point we need to appreciate. They're still true, even in those times, even at the grave of loved ones, even at doctor's appointments when they say we've done all that we can do. God still loves humanity in days of suffering. Remember, we have a creator who loves a creator who loves us deeply, who loves every one of us. Somebody says, wait a minute, I'm suffering acutely. Suffering seems very real and very personal. My anxieties, my stressors, my frustrations, they seem very real. And this love of God that you described does not. It seems to be very distant and very cold. Just appreciate this fact that God is a greater reality than our feelings. And just because we don't feel like God is there doesn't mean that he is not. God's in our midst. There's an occasion in Genesis chapter 28 when God communicates with Jacob in a dream. And I'm not saying that God's going to communicate to us in a dream, but this is what happens to Jacob. In Genesis 28 and verse 16, he emerges from his sleep and he says, behold, the Lord God was here and I knew it not. And that's true in your suffering and in mine. Sometimes we feel like God's abandoned us, but the Bible says the opposite. In times of hardship, in times of suffering, the Bible says God is nearer to you then than at any other time. Psalm 34 and verse 18, God is near to the brokenhearted and to those that are crushed in spirit. When God looks out of humanity and he sees people suffering and dealing with hardship and difficulty, it's to those people that he presses in closer. It's to those people that he draws near to. And we should keep in mind in days of suffering that we have a God who deeply loves us who loves us more than we love him, who loves us more than we love ourselves. We can think to ourselves, well, why doesn't God do something about it? And, you know, they thought the same thing. Look at verse 21. Martha comes to Jesus and she says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Mary repeats the same thing in verse 32. If you had been here, my brother would not have died as if somehow Jesus was aloof and disinterested. But he was there and he was showing and manifesting his love for them. In days of suffering, remember that God's love has not been suspended. The devil, your own conscience and your circumstances might cause you to think that the love of God waxes and wanes. But that's not true. That's not who he is. He's a God who loves us, even in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our suffering. Here's number four. In days of suffering, remember that you have a dying savior. After Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb, Caiaphas, the high priest, in John 11 and verse 49, the Jews are impressed. They say this man does miracles in verse 47. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, says, you know nothing at all. It's better that one man should die for the whole nation than that the whole nation should perish. And he spoke about Jesus dying on behalf of humanity to not only die on behalf of the Jews, but for all the children of God who were scattered abroad to bring them into one fold and one flock. And though he prophesies accidentally about Jesus' death, his words are accurate. Jesus was going to die, and he was going to die for everybody in the world. 
in days of suffering, remember that you and I have a dying Savior. Jesus didn't have to, but he chose to do it in behalf of us to ultimately remove all suffering. Have you ever said to yourself, if God sees all this suffering, why won't he do something about it? Why won't he intervene? God's response to that is, yes, I see it, and I already have. Hebrews 2 and verse 9 says, We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In times of suffering, remember that Jesus died. Jesus knew that he was born to die, but he did it to ultimately remove suffering. Matthew 16 and verse 21, he told Peter and the rest, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed and delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. He'll be crucified and raised from the dead the third day. This is my blood, which is shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26 and verse 28. When we suffer, we should remember that we have a God who went all the way, who entered the human experience and suffered the death that we deserve to die. After he lived the life that none of us could live, he swapped places with us, and he died. You see, more than just in John 11, a miracle of Jesus resurrecting a friend, there's the great reversal. Jesus calls Lazarus out so that he could go in. He's taking his place and he takes ours and he does it through the suffering on our behalf. If we think God doesn't care, if we think God's pushed back, if we think God is sleeping on the job, John 11 says you have a savior who loves you to death. In October 2021, there was a lady who was sexually assaulted on a train in Philadelphia And it wasn't just a catastrophe that she was assaulted on this train, but it was a catastrophe that it happened for eight minutes. And there were all these other people on the train, these onlookers who did nothing about it. In fact, the superintendent of police said those individuals that were on this train when this woman was assaulted and who did nothing to intervene or help will have to look themselves in the mirror and say, why didn't we do something? He said maybe not one of them, but collectively they could have done something to thwart the attack, but they didn't. And you might think of some reasons for them, maybe some excuses why they wouldn't have got involved. It wasn't their business. It's pretty dangerous. They don't know what this individual was capable of. They probably should just sort of stay out of it. Maybe they would get hurt if they intervened. All of the excuses that we could conjure up for them, in the end, they saw somebody suffering, they saw somebody hurting, and they did nothing to help. And don't you know, Jesus is in heaven, and he sees humanity suffering, and it's really not his business It doesn't have anything to do with him. Listen, Jesus doesn't come and think to himself, it may be problematic. It may be troublesome. It may be dangerous. He knows that if he comes and gets involved, it will be deadly. And he comes anyway. He intervenes in our place. John 10 and verse 18 says, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I have power to take it up again. Jesus says, I love you, love you enough to come and to be involved in the human experience and to die in your place so that suffering will be no more. There's a story told of a famous Bible teacher whose wife died from cancer in her 30s and on the way to the funeral. His daughter asked him, if Jesus died for us, why do we still have to die? And he thought about it for a little while. And just about that time, as they're on their way to the funeral, one of these big monster trucks roars past. And he says to his daughter, you know, would you rather be hit by that truck or by its shadow? And she said, of course, I would rather be hit by the shadow. If the truck hits me, it'll kill me. But the shadow, it can't harm me. He said, oh, yes. And that's how death operates. Jesus was hit by the truck in our place. And now all death can do is hit us with his shadow. It's been stripped of its power because in days of suffering, we have a savior who died in our place 
so that we don't have to experience the ultimate sting of death that would have been ours otherwise. Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he says, I'll take his place. Lazarus, come forth. But if he's going to call him forth, he has to go in. When he's on the cross, stretched out, dying for the sins of the world, Matthew 27, 40 through 43, they mock him and say he saved others himself. He cannot save. But they misunderstood. If Jesus comes down and saves himself, he can't save them. But if he goes through with it and if he dies on our account, then he can rescue and save us. Tim Keller has said the next time you suffer, you should think about this instead of asking yourself, why is God doing this or does God love me or why God hasn't intervened? You should ask yourself this and I should do the same. If Jesus did not abandon me in his greatest hour of suffering and darkness, what makes me think he'll abandon me in mine? And being in an agony, he prayed and the sweat became like drops of blood. Luke twenty two forty four, And he didn't abandon us. He went all the way because he loves us that much. Suffering can make us feel unseen, unwanted and unloved. But Jesus says in suffering through the cross, no, you're actually to die for. He went to the cross on our behalf. Here's the fifth and final one. In days of suffering, remember that we have a risen savior. Martha says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She says, but now I know that whatever you ask of God He'll give you. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says in verse 24, I know he'll rise again at the last day. What's probably going on in Martha's mind at this point is a reference back to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 in the Old Testament, where it says that the righteous and the wicked will be raised. And she's thinking of some eschatological resurrection at the end of time that Jesus is going to raise her brother from the dead. But would you notice what he says in verse 25? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet will he live. He that believes in me will never really die. Do you believe this? And the end of verse 26 is the question that's extended to humanity up to the present hour. Do you believe him? If you believe in him, you'll never really die. You escape death. In days of suffering, remember that we serve a risen Savior. Oh, Jesus went into the grave, but he didn't stay. And in his resurrection, it's not just good news for him. It's actually great news for us. He's the first fruits of those that sleep. Christ in his own order. Then afterwards, those that belong to Jesus at his coming. First Corinthians 15, 20 and 23. In Jesus's resurrection, there's hope for you and there's hope for me that we don't die. Don't you know this is great news? If you're a Christian, that means that one day you will read death's obituary. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed, Paul speaks with assurance, is death. Then will be brought to pass the saying that's written. Christians have the ultimate victory in the midst of human suffering because Jesus overcame on our behalf. In view of that great reality, in view of that truth that one day will be ours, it makes the worst days in this life seem merely like a night of inconvenience in an uncomfortable hotel. When you think about the resurrection and the joy that will ultimately be ours, it's enough to push us through in times of difficulty, in times of hardship, in times of suffering. If you're a Christian, just appreciate this. That the day is coming, no matter how dark this world is, no amount of darkness in this world can stop this great light from coming through and these things being your reality. If you're a Christian, a day is coming when you won't know the pain of arthritis anymore. You won't know it. No more dementia. No more cancer treatments. No more we've done all we could do statements. 
No more premature deaths and loss. No more hardship, no more heartaches, no more paper cuts or even tummy aches. All the pain that humanity has ever known has already been put on notice. Jesus assures us that in his resurrection, we will enjoy the same. Look at the text again in verse 26. He says, if a man believes in me, he will never really die. Do you believe this? And that's what it comes down to, whether or not we really believe him. In the end, Christianity is not just about how to live a good life here. It's about how to ultimately emerge victorious on the other side to be victorious over death and over human suffering. And Jesus says, I'll give you that in me, but only in me. You've got to come to me believing and trusting. And if you do. It's really just a matter of time. First Thessalonians 4.13 says there will be the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God and the dead in Christ. They will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's what's coming for Christians. And so in days of suffering, we should remember all that God has done and all that God is already doing in our behalf so that we can press through. He gets to the grave of Lazarus and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. That means without Jesus, we can't have life. But with him, we can have it. You look back in the centuries and you see Job and Job cries out in Job Job 14, 14. If a man dies, will he live again? And Jesus echoes back in John 11. Oh, yes, Job, a man will live again like he's never lived before. Like God always intended him to. Because I'm the answer to human suffering, the resurrection and the life. It may be tempting for us to hear a lesson like this and say to ourselves, yeah, that's good, but that's not good enough for me. Somebody says, I need a more immediate resolution. I get it that in the end there's resurrection and there's heaven and there's glory. But what about right now? What about the suffering I'm experiencing in the present? What about all the hunger and all of the abuse and all of the addiction and all the suffering that's going on right now? I'm not going to serve a God who's going to postpone rescue and give it to us in the end. If I can't have it now, he's unworthy of my service. John 11 says to us, listen, God's solutions are far more better than ours. And to the degree that we accept those solutions and put our trust in him, whatever suffering we know now is already coming to an end. But on the reverse, to reject him, to push away his hand and his solutions means that whatever experience of suffering we know now is really only beginning. To put our trust in him, Jesus is saying, listen, all of the heartache, all of the suffering in the world is already coming to an end. You're already halfway there in Christ. You're no longer a victim. You're a victor. And all death can do at this point is hit us with her shadow. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to suffer for no reason. To be mocked, to be betrayed, to be spit upon, to cry out to heaven and seem as if he only receives silence back from the skies. He knows what that's like. But if we're in tune with God's frequency, we know that God does his best work in the dark. And what appeared to be the worst day in all of humanity was actually her best. Jesus died in our place and rose triumphantly. And he says, the suffering that I've experienced is already putting an end to yours. Maybe you need to obey the gospel and become a Christian. To unite yourself with Jesus by putting your faith and trust in him and being immersed to have your sins washed away. We'd love to help you do that. The moment you do that, your suffering and all the suffering you've ever known begins to come to an end. It won't ultimately happen until the resurrection. But this life is a great start. If you're a Christian and you're suffering and hurting, just remember the resurrection is coming. But in the meantime, God gives us a Christian family. 
to pray with us, to pray for us, to help to absorb the hardship that we all experience and face on occasion. Listen, when you cry, when you're angry, when you're frustrated, it doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean that you should be stronger, that you should be better. It means that you identify with the Lord of heaven who feels the very same things on our behalf. We're going to extend the invitation as is our custom. If you in any way, if we can comfort you or pray for you, we'd be happy to do that. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.